Dookie. Yes? You know how I does my singing for you, isn't it? Certainly. It's a great feature on each and every Dookie radio show that you're a part of, which well, is uh, pretty I'm... much each and every episode. Well, of course it is. But today I'm going to be singing one of my favourite songs by a lovely lady. Right. So what's, what track is this? What are we talking well, about? Well, I don't know the names of the songs that I sing, but I know the video. In the video, she's a lovely lady wearing a lovely dress and a pair of handcuffs, isn't she? Handcuffs in a video. Yeah, she's is, wearing the handcuffs and the, a lovely dress in it. Is this the video that I saw you watching earlier, which yes. was the song "Laid" by James? That's a James. That's a that's a man's name. That's not a lady's name, is he? James is a man's name, and Tim Booth, the lead singer, is all male. Her name's Tim. Who names their daughter Tim? No, he's a man wearing a dress yeah, in a video. She's wearing a dress. Anyway, she's wearing a dress and I like the handcuffs because on Saturday nights, me and Roy, we, we tend to have handcuff night. Handcuff night? So yeah. you and Roy do a little bit of a role play? I don't know what it's called. We call it handcuff night. Uh, so enough. anyway, so she's... Direct, a- short, sharp and to the point. I don't know what you're on about. Half the time, Dookie. But oh, I love you. I love you, Dookie. I love you too. So uh, the handcuffs, I love that. And I love the way that she hits a note. That he hits a note, Tim Booth. She hits a note that I love this note, Dookie. And I think that you're going to love it too. I must correct you. Tim Booth is all man and actually has a bit of a relationship with the guest on this instalment of the Dookie radio Does show, she? Milo McCabe. Ah. Does well, he? she's very pretty, isn't He's she? a good-looking man still, and in that video is a very, very lovely-looking leg. Well, anyway, Dookie, there's a note. Oh, there's a note. In the song. Oh, I'm aware. Are you ready for the note, Dookie? Oh, I oh, I love this note, Dookie. Here we go. This bed is on fire, we're pushing in love. About the noises above, but she only comes when she's on top. Oh, you think you're so pretty. Yay! 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 Wow. studio i have sylvia silversmith hello and marsha mcdonald yeah what up peeps on this episode of the dookie radio show we have a special guest milo mccabe a character comedian who we saw at the edinburgh fringe in late august so we did and is it safe to say that he was one of the highlights of all the performers that we saw when we were up in scotland he was 
He was. And, and, you know, on the free, the whole free thingy, the free thingy fringe. The free fringe, which we were initially um, very dismissive about. And, my goodness, with the likes of Pippa Evans and Myla McCabe, we consumed humble pie left, right and centre and contributed much money in many a bucket. There was a... There was a lot of humble pie being eaten. And you know what else there was being eaten, Dookie? There were burgers and fries being eaten because of where he was, which was in the diner. That that was a venue. And I like that venue. It was really, really, really good. They served burgers, chips in the American diner style, and whiskey. That's a good combination. Yeah, I like being able to have a whiskey with my burger while I'm being served, like, in the dark by people who who know a lot about hair products. There was a lot of gel about them. They knew a hair product, and they knew how to use it. And I thought that, you know, you want something nice to look at, right? They were aesthetically pleasing people, predominantly performers there, taking in the grub and the whiskey and the pints. and, And the venue itself had a really, really, really good kind of old school grotty in a good way comedy yeah grotty vibe yes what it, what is grotty you what know, is that low ceiling dark smelled as though it might not have been really clean properly since well john major was prime minister i think that the carpeting in the venue in which milo performed his wonderful set had seen a lot of spillage. There was definitely a lot of spillage. And that is a Both word... Both drinks and possibly other kinds of fluids. Yes, that that's a word that I like to say is spillage. It's, it's a good word for you. I encourage you to say that word, like, a lot. Spillage. Spillage. So there he was, in all his glory, being very wonderful in a very insalubrious venue, while up above, very cool people consumed burgers and whiskey. And he was, he was all kinds of fabulous. Smoking jacket, gelled hair, that tash, that accent. That, that accent. Dookie, he's more posh than you are. Yes. And that is saying something. The unflappable Troy Hawk, that is. The uncreation. Mm. Doesn't he do other stuff? I mean, isn't he like Mr. Talent? My word. Myla McCabe, a trained psychotherapist. Oh, really? A fantastic drummer. Oh, wow. There's nothing this man can't do. Yeah, I mean, he seems like a talent. He's and- a renaissance man. Uh, yeah, it sounds like. He can do every accent under the sun and, and probably even behind it. Does that make sense? He's, it doesn't. It, it, it makes sense for you, Dookie. Mm. And that's really all that matters. That's all that he's, matters. He's very talented. Yeah, the only problem that I got is uh, that was... He's the reason why Irene has just done that well, let's just say it, Dookie. It, 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 she hit a note. She hit a note. Yeah, she hit a note. She hit a note. There are cats in Aberdeen who are going to require some kind of a psychological intervention because of that note. 
There are dogs in yeah. Epsom uh, who are well, crying now. If, if he's a psychotherapist, right, mm. maybe your interview with him will help us all. We all need a, a handy wipe for our brains to get over that note. And, and maybe I think the interview is going to be that handy wipe. Bring on the handy wipe. Bring it on, Dookie. Doing character comedy 2016, where does Milo McCabe start and the characters end and vice versa? Well, uh, I mean, it's actually better when Milo McCabe isn't involved at all. Mm. That's, that's, Should um, we just end the interview here then? Yeah, pretty much. That's why I do characters, <laughs> because I, I think, um, like, this is quite a cliche, but I think pretty much every comedian is a character of sorts. So you could say that character comedy is uh, less disingenuous because it's saying I am actually a character whereas when a stand-up goes up normally they're a heightened version of themselves or a heightened version of someone who their on stage persona is uh, that's typical character comedian's defense mm. when uh, people say things like oh you hide behind a screen or whatever which essentially you do as a character comic but at the same time for me I found I could be a lot more honest as a character than I, I, I did normal stand-up I say normal stand-up like like you know just me stand-up for about a year and I think I was less genuine when I was doing that than any character I've ever done really yeah for some reason I think fundamentally like I'm a sort of to pigeonhole myself I'm a white middle class guy who hasn't really got I think the sufficient sort of angst to actually do stand-up comedy compellingly without faking it mm. if you know what I mean that might be that. That might be like why some people do character uh, comedy because they're better adjusted. I don't even think I'm that well adjusted. I just don't have that much to say. How about that? I don't have that much to say. I'm scrabbling around for things to say and complain about, so I have to adopt a persona. All right, so, fuck you. Would it help if you had more middle class guilt so that you could? No, I've got shitloads of middle class guilt. I think it'd help if I had like. I don't know, worse upbringing, worse set of circumstances to sort of like... Uh, Damn your parents for being good yeah, to you. Yeah, exactly. All, you too all well that loved. kind of stuff, yeah. The one difference between yourself and some character comedians is when I first came across your flyer at Edinburgh Fringe 2016, it had your name proudly emblazoned upon the name of a certain character. Yeah. Have you always done that? Was that, that a conscious decision? No, in... 2009, uh, I, I did a Portuguese character called Philberto, and I went to Edinburgh for the first time. And my idea was that I wanted people to think it was a real person. Mate, next time a comedian says to you, what do you do for a job? Goes for everyone in here. Look him in the eye, right? Look him in the eyes, this guy, right? This fucking guy who needs the approval of 200 strangers every night just to feel as good as he does in his pajamas on a Tuesday, right? <laughs> that emotionally retarded motherfucker. Shut up. So I didn't have my name anywhere near the flyers. And like, you know, uh, my agent has, has advised that I've got to have my name up there just to sort of have me as the ultimate thing, whatever. So it's not necessarily my choice. It's more of a, a thing that he says to do. So you can direct people to a website or have me attached to an entity. Otherwise, I'm kind of spread, spread across various different fictional people that don't exist. Hmm. So there's some thinking to that. But originally, when I went up to Edinburgh, uh, I, I just just did the character, just this Philberto guy, and uh, it was a Portuguese reality TV star. 
and a lot a lot of people in gigs when I was doing it and at the, the festival just kind of bought it which was good and bad oh you they know, thought you was, were a yeah, legit they thought I just was this legit asshole. but I wanted that in a way that was what I wanted but at the same time it sort of didn't work and as time as time went on that character like the tough thing with character comedy when you're doing weekend clubs is over time you dilute it and you 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 take out the idiosyncrasies and the stuff that makes it niche and character like and all the stuff that gets laughs in weekend clubs when you're going around that's the stuff that comes through so eventually after doing that for a couple of years i realized i diluted it so much i couldn't write any more material for it because essentially it was just me um with a foreign accent do you know what I mean? It was just, and, and, and that's when it started, that's when I started to lose a bit of faith in it. So I switched into this new character and uh, it's working a lot better. How did Troy Hawk come about? Well, initially I was doing a multi-character show in 2012, uh, which was a bit too high concept for its own good. It was like, this is your life meets Inception. And it's one of those ideas. Oh, as soon as you had Inception. I know. And it's like, <laughs> so it's such a cliche now. And I thought it wasn't in 2012. But it was, it was sort of like this, this is your life thing with my dad, who's a comedian. He was in it as well. And I was playing different characters mm. uh, who were from his past. And there was a big meta twist at the end. And it was kind of like, it was a, a good idea, but I just think I made it way too fucking complicated. And I, I've been guilty of that with shows before. Mm. But one of the characters was this character, Troy Hawk. And, and this was the one that I looked forward to. Like, there were four different characters, but this was the one that sort of people responded to the best. And also, this was the one that I felt most comfortable in. So from 2012, I also... I didn't do him in, in clubs or anything at that point, but 2013, I had another character show format where he was in it, and he was definitively the strongest part in it and I felt it getting stronger so I was like right this is cool and also it was nice to do a character where I didn't have to pretend to know less English than I actually did because <laughs> that was always a pain in the ass when you get hecklers and you have to go through your mental rolodex like oh I can't use that word I can't use this word etc etc did you have any when you were doing the Portuguese reality star did you come across any Portuguese people that- oh yeah they fucking hate me of course they did I was like I was heckled in Portuguese like a couple of times like by really angry people and just to find so and uh, I, I'd have to come out of character <laughs> to fend myself I'm so sorry I'm there, no it was I mean fair enough do you know what I mean I, I wasn't necessarily saying anything um, that would I mean the only, the only thing the thing that really upset people well not people some people when I was when I was doing the, the Portuguese character I had an opening line where I said uh, um Hello, yes, um, I'm actually Portuguese, uh, but uh, no, I don't know where she is. And that, right, was, <laughs> yeah, okay, it's a Madeleine McCann joke, but it's a reflection <laughs> on what my Portuguese flatmate, who the character was based on, would periodically get. So it's a joke, not so much about Madeleine McCann. It's more about the kind of things that uh, people would say to somebody from Portugal at that time but it didn't always go over like that that was sort of like always a watermark for the gig like if people really laughed at that and responded mm. then I was like okay safe and then some gigs like if I was going on first at some sort of art centre or something it would just I'd just get a couple of stifled like guffaws and then blanket silence and I was like right I'm fucked now this is that I'm gonna struggle <laughs> Did you find when you were doing that across the country that different parts of the UK that audiences would get it and more in certain places more than others or? Uh, no, not, I, there wasn't really certain places more than others. Um, m- most people just thought I was this guy. 
you know mm. but uh, i remember a, a comic at the time like i was doing very well i was like getting great responses from crowds and stuff but it was a real lesson for me because i remember i was i was with a comic uh we were on a foreign tour and he said can i say something he goes yeah he goes i don't think what you're doing is very good i think you're better than what you're doing i, I don't think it has much comic value why are you doing it what are you trying to say and at the time i was like fuck you i'm doing really well i'm mm. getting really sort of good audience responses yada 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 but then over time i realized that he was absolutely right because i'm giving all this energy to something that's utterly meaningless and utterly pointless but at the time i was so happy that i was getting a good reaction and making a living i was like look look at the laughs you can judge by the laughs but as time's gone on i've realized that no actually there's a, there's, a, there's a there's a lot more to it than just getting laughs there are some absolutely dreadful acts that can go out well i say dreadful acts that i don't that's not fair acts i personally don't find funny or aspirational who go out and get huge responses from mm. from you know crowds and stuff and that's that's absolutely fine but it's it's not the be all and end all it has to be a bit more there has to be more to it because ultimately if you're doing something empty you know what what's the point in what you're doing i, I don't know if i'm sort of de describing this articulately enough i think it makes perfect sense i mean oh, okay. ultimately you in probably quite an emotional frame of mind, put a character that was going over well to to rest. That's a big thing. No, if you, if you're getting I, I was so sick of it by the end. Oh, really? Had I you... couldn't write material for it. You know, I knew sort of what, what, as I was doing my new character, comics would would go out of their way to say, "This is so much better than what you were doing before." Like comics who who would have been too polite, or friends of mine mm. who would have been too polite to say, I, th "I think this kind of sucks a little bit." I know it's going over well, but. Mm. But, but I know we're thinking it, and, and rightfully so. But it was actually the comic that said to me, what are you doing? What's the point? But he did me the biggest favour. Right. He really did. Because at first I sort of react. I was like, hey. And then I was like, no, do you know what? Over time, yeah, you've, you've, you've got a point. And that really helped me out. And funnily enough, that guy, when he saw me doing Troy, was like, absolutely. There it is. That's, mm. the, that's the thing. That's, that's, that connects. That's much more you. That's, that's you know, that's, that's what you want to do. And it's more, so much more satisfying. A real friend will stand shoulder to shoulder with you and pull yeah. you up on things, and it's tough love. But I, it's I still don't know love. If, if it was tough love or the guy just didn't like the act. <laughs> oh, <fair enough. laughs> I think it was accidental tough love under the guise of bullying, <laughs> which still I'll take the positive from it. Do you know what I mean? It still worked. We're giving him far too much credit or, or and far uh, too less. Is oh. um, is uh, this particular comedian somebody that we know and somebody on the circuit? Well, I'm not going to say who it is. All right. Oh, damn you. Well, but actually, to be fair, this is like three or four comedians melded together into ah. one imaginary comedian. <laughs> so these are three or four comedians who over time and say, what are you doing that sucks? Which is actually lovely, you know. Mm. Actually really kind of like tough, tough love, like you say. Yeah. Earlier, did I hear you correctly? You said that your father is also a comedian. Yeah, he still is. He does like working men's clubs, uh, the old circuit. Mm. It's, uh, there was a book by a guy called Oliver Double, who's a comedy scholar. And my dad was the segue between old school comedy and what was then new wave alternative comedy. Because uh, in, in the old way of doing things, it was accepted that you could use lines like any jokes were in the pool. Now, my dad got was on The Comedians in 1990 with mm. the old school mentality of, oh, any jokes in the pool. So he took one of Jack D's routines that had been on ITV three months previously and did it on ITV, which, you know, in hindsight, isn't the most sensible thing. But he was the sort of catalyst for this author to go, here's where the old school rules were represented 
uh, with jokes from an alternative comic. And this is where it went. It was in the papers and stuff and Nick in the routine. So it was the two uh, comedic mentalities sort of clashing. Mm. Um, but yeah, back in the day, you could just do any routines. Like if you were doing, if you're on a, a bill with another comedian, they'd have to go and see which comic, uh, w- 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 which jokes the comic had done. So he's sort of of that era. And yeah, he still goes, you know, he still plays like the old holiday camp and stuff. He's still, he's very funny. And how early on into your life did comedy appear as a, as a prospect for something that you wanted to do? Never, not at all. Really? Yeah. I mean, comedy for me, like dad was always like, it was this huge sort of wish fulfillment, impossible thing that just people couldn't do. Like I, I kind of, for me, the, when comedy really got me for the first time, again, it's a cliche, but it was Derek and Clive. The other day, some bloke came up to me. I don't know who it was. And he said, you can't. Yeah. I said, what? He said, you can't. Yeah. yeah. And you replied, you fucking can't. I said, can't. Uh, no, well, not straight away. I said, you can't. Yeah. I said, yeah, you know. yeah. And then he what said, he come back with? He come back, he says... He said, you fucking cunt. You're he said, you joking. Call me a c- he said, you he, fucking yeah. cunt. He said, you call me a cunt, you fucking c- I said, you, f- I said, you fucking cunt. I should hope so. You fucking I, cunt. I said, you fucking cunt. Like, I'd always liked sort of things like Red Dwarf and Sean's show. Like, Sean Hughes, when I, was, mm. when I was a kid, I used to watch that all the time. Bye-bye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's Sean's show, bye-bye. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye. And... Uh, and then I saw Derek and Clive tape and it was just like being harpooned and it was amazing. Mm. And then I never thought, oh, comedian. But when I was in a band, the guy I was in a band with ran a comedy night. And I said, if I use your gear and set up your night with your banner and your branding and I do all the work, how about we split the profits? So I started running a comedy night with the guy I was in a band with when I was a drummer. And that's kind of how I started because after a couple of months, I was like, well, I could MC it. So I, I never had, I never decided I was going to be a comedian. Um, I started occasionally booking this night, emceeing it horribly badly. Like, you know, just clipboard MC going up, no desire to be a comic. And then soon, like, I remember I tried a joke for the first time and it was awful. It was like an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression or something turgid mm. like that. But I got this laugh and I drove all the way home from Enfield, just like on fire. And I phoned my dad up and he was like, oh Christ, here we go. <laughs> and then... Um, Funnily enough, I used to book through this quite big agent uh, who had loads of great acts at the time. I'd book for the club I was running. And then one day she said, well, why don't you do comedy yourself? You seem quite funny. You know, we met up. She got me a gig. I did this gig. It was like a bucket list thing. I got off. And this person, this this booker, who'd always been very, very sweet, uh, I came off and she was like, what the fuck are you doing? Why did you do that joke? That was awful. Wait, and I'm like, hang on a second. What's going on? And she's like, but, but I'm going to represent you. You're going to be a stand-up. So it was almost like, I was like, uh, okay, fuck. I thought that was one and done, but you're telling me I've got an agent on my second gig. So that's sort of, it was almost like it was put in front of me. Mm. It wasn't like I went and sought it out. It Destiny like, intervened. That's one way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a cheesy American yeah. cinema version. What year are we talking about here when you were sort of doing this? And that was uh, that was mid-2003. 13 years ago. And the fact that you were out there behind a drum kit playing means that, that up and... Till that point, music must have played an important part in in your life. Yeah, it was it was weird. I was in a I was a full time drummer. I was in this band. We were doing sort of four or five gigs a week. Um, but then as soon as I started doing comedy, I was like at the point where I would rather go and do a five minute open spot for nothing hmm. than get paid 200, 250 quid to go and do a wedding somewhere. 
like I was at the point where wow and then shortly after that I um, got in a band with Tim Booth mm. from, James. from James I met him in an acting class didn't have a clue who he was telling him all about my drumming and he was like mm, oh, I need a drummer and I'm like well you know I'm a pro mate you know. and then he played me this demo and I was like fuck it's that guy and got in his band for a year it was amazing we did like all the festivals uh, Glastonbury Tea in the Park uh, V you know we, we gigged with Morrissey in Spain um, uh, we, we were on with the Killers in Glastonbury and stuff and met Amy Winehouse it was just an amazing year mm. but it was almost like that was my drumming life sort of hitting its peak and coming to an end because even playing those big gigs I found that I was happier doing stand-up like even a tiny shitty stand-up gig Mm. and the thing about playing with Tim as well uh, being an obvious attention hound like you're invisible like people just adore him do you know what I mean? Mm. You, you, you know, people are so in love with Tim. If you're in his band, like if they're talking to you, it's so they can ask you about him. <laughs> and, you know, I'm an egotistical prick in his mid-twenties. <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus Christ, you know. So, so people would come up to you and you would probably have a brief moment of, oh, yes, finally, somebody has noticed the drummer. Yeah. And they probably ask, so what's it like to play with Tim then? Yeah, yeah. Completely. How come you're not doing more completely. James songs? Completely, completely. Yeah. But he's, he's lush. He's absolutely lovely. And, and it was an incredible experience as well. That tour ended and I sort of got into stand-up full time. Probably like, that was like late 2004. Yeah. My goodness, what, a, what an absolute whirlwind. I must ask, I know with, and probably the last question relating to your uh, musical background, you mentioned playing alongside Morrissey. Morrissey back in the day was a a huge fan of James well apparently I don't know if I'm allowed to say this but go for it bucket Um, apparently Morrissey wrote um, the song We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful about him now I don't know if that's true or not but what was really interesting was we did this festival in Spain and we were sort of in there first. When Morrissey arrived, he had us moved out of our dressing room. Mm. Uh, he had a setup whereby he wouldn't have to see or speak to anybody. Um, he didn't acknowledge Tim, didn't look at him, didn't mention him, didn't go and say hi, like nothing. Uh, kept himself out of the way of everybody. And then when it was his time to go on stage, he was like shepherded on, separated by this membrane of people away from the rest of the world. Did his gig. Uh, there was a girl just sort of backstage with a hairdryer and three changes of shirts. Like he'd, he'd come off in between songs, like change shirts. And he, he had a whole road cordoned off so that the second he sung his last note, put the mic in, walked straight out, straight into a car. And I mean, he had police shut off a road so he could fuck straight off right without having to see a soul now i don't you know i don't know anything that was like i was just like blown away by that i mean you know he's really owning that that diva thing but um, my word that's yeah. <laughs> yeah it was it was quite something you know i mean he was fully committed to whatever he was doing in terms of his solipsism is that the right word mm, it is now god that might be the wrong word <laughs> fuck it it doesn't matter how did that all end i mean you did all these wonderful festivals at some stage 
you had to tell Tim no? No, no it, was, or- it was like the, the tour ended. Mm. Toured the album, the tour ended, and then there was a gap of a couple of years. And I remember I kind of stopped playing. Then in 2010, uh, Tim rang me up and goes, right, we're going to do this other tour. And I'm like, dude, I haven't played drums for like three or four years. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm a drummer anymore. And it was, part, it was quite heartbreaking to sort of say, I don't think this is going to this is for me anymore but at the same time it wasn't because I was in a comedy by then one door shuts and another huge door opens I think it speaks volumes when you were talking about your time as a function band musician that you could be getting paid loads of money mm. at a at a wedding but you'd rather do a you know a four oh, was, or five minute slot for yeah, free yeah it was soul destroying and absolutely soul destroying when you're playing set, like you grow to hate certain songs. Like you know this, you mm-hmm. know. There's certain songs where, the, the, as it starts, as the sort of opening bit kicks in, you just, you just, oh. And there's certain function songs like Celebrate or Mustang Sally, mm. which is real staples that all session musicians or function band musicians just like. Mm. You know, it kills you. It starts killing you, and then when you hear those songs outside of work, it mm. also kills you. You know, it's kind and of- your routines get like that though. If you've had a routine for too long. It's the same, like if you've had a joke that works for too long, it's the same thing. And a function band is never going to belt out a really emotional, poignant version of Celebrate, are they? No. No, of course they're not. And by the same token, if you've got a bit of material that you've done to death, you're not going to be able to sell it anymore, which is why it's so important to turn over material, which is also something that I didn't do enough of a couple of years ago. I'm doing it now. Like my oldest bit now is like a year and a half old, which is still quite old. But, you know, I had some bits that I just keep going for like six years uh, when, I, when I got started, just because I was so locked into that money earning 20 minute set. But then it calcifies and it starts to sort of crumble Mm. and you can't sell it the same. So you really have to keep writing new stuff all the time. Your enthusiasm atrophies, I suppose, um, quite quite rapidly. I mean, we're here backstage in London. Um, You're about to go out shortly and this is going to be the last London performance of the unflappable Troy Hawk. Yeah, unless um, uh, Lee... Soho Theatre watches the version I'm going to tape tonight and likes it enough to program me into his uh, oh, program right. for next year. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm already sort of writing the next show, but this I think this is the best show I've ever done mm. and uh, it's going down very well. Now, we're all going to have happy fun fun like we used to have back in the old days. Fun. Now, I've recently been up in Edinburgh uh, doing this show, full month. Thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, as soon as I got up there, actually, pretty much the second I stepped off the train, uh, this indigenous chap. Um, I don't know. No, no, I, listen. Listen, I knew he was a native. He had the blue skin. <laughs> oh. Now, this chap uh, immediately, immediately engaged, engaged with me, uh, summoned my attention in the following manner. Where shall we, you, Paul? You got your fancy dress party, you what? You dodo! Now, 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 if you're unfamiliar with the dialect, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you dangling there. I've got your back. I'll translate for you. Of course I will. Uh, what the chap said was, ah, I see you've made some fabulous sartorial decisions. It's through this show that I was introduced to you, um, yeah. initially at the Fast Fringe, the Dukey Radio Show. We're at uh, the Fringe Festival in late uh, August this year. And I was absolutely blown away when I saw 
Troy Hawk at Fast Fringe. You know, oh, three thanks. minutes or so. Right. And to create... Talk, talk me through you being blown away. <laughs> talk me through exactly what went on. There are a lot of... There are a lot of fine comedians on the bill there, and it is a great introduction to get a taster for what people are doing. And, you know, the fringe is an, an expensive prospect when you're a performer. It's also when you're I there thought, as I a, thought you were talking about me blowing you away. No, no, we're, we're getting there. Right. I'm building it up. This is uh, the foreplay. Nice. <laughs> and when you came on, as, oh. before you'd even said a single word, yeah. I was sold. Ah, oh, cool. Really, it was just visually, your mannerisms, and it was just so different, so fresh. And without having to provide a huge backstory, I was in that world. Yeah. And suddenly, other comedians who I enjoyed that particular evening, and there are a number of people who have done very, very well, who were you know established comedians who were selling their wares to, you know, get the up the revenue for the last couple of days of the fringe yeah. i mean that's what the fast fringe is basically mm. it's like uh, you you go in there it's like a showcase uh, everyone's in there to sell tickets mm. push their show yeah. and yours was the one that i went out and immediately got well it was a free show but I immediately put it in my diary that uh, you know we had to go and and we did the next day and then suddenly other people who i'd enjoyed a great deal and indeed i think the two other people on that particular night who i made an effort to go and see um, yours was the one that I anticipated the most and I wasn't disappointed. Oh, thanks. Because sometimes you think, you know, for, for three minutes, you know, is this, you know, a mustard character? Does a little yeah. bit go a long way? Yeah. And no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, and uh, it was just a, an absolutely engaging hour, um, the un- unflappable Trey Hawk that is. And I, th- I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was one of those, you know that you're at a good show when it's, winding down in which you go no no oh, ah yeah, yeah a lot of people on, on the fringe they might have a great 20 minutes they might have a, a good 40 minutes right. very rarely will that extend to you know an hour well 50 if we're 50. being oh, right. a bit picky oh, was, was, was it I came in at 50 yeah oh it felt so quick <laughs> Time, yeah. time flies generally with an hour we, I, sometimes i go over depending on how much chat i did like some some days later, but i always try and hit about 50 i think that 50 is a good number i think that's that's sort of accepted when you're doing an hour show is you you know 50 i think beyond that it doesn't matter how good you are i think people will start to shift around and get mm. a bit uncomfortable that's my own personal thing it's like 50 hit 50 you've got a bit of room to play with boom people have got time to hit the next show uh, there is an important piece of administration I have to go through. Is there anyone in here currently having their monthly period? No. No, good, thank you. Thank you for ignoring the diffusion of responsibility principle, madam, and answering on behalf of the room. And I'm very glad about that. Now, by the way, uh, this hasn't come from me. This is coming from a much higher source. Uh, this is coming from the Bible. Now, I'm going to read a passage to you may or may not be aware of. Uh, <laughs> here we go. Uh, this is from, let me see, Leviticus. Of course it is. <laughs> you knew that, didn't you? Because you knew, yeah. Anyway, it goes on. <laughs> when a woman has her monthly period, she remains unclean for seven days. Anyone who touches her is unclean until the evening. Anything on which she sits or lies during her monthly period is unclean. Anyone who touches anything she has sat or lied on during her monthly period is unclean and unclean until the evening. Here's the point. I've got a very busy schedule tomorrow. <laughs> it's evening now. 
If I touch someone who's having their monthly period, or I touch someone who's touched someone who's having their monthly period, or I touch someone who touches someone who touches something that's touched someone who's having their monthly period, I'm going to be unclean. Look, there's what, 25, 30 of us in here. Imagine if one person has their monthly period. We all go out into central London. We could be spreading the biggest pandemic of uncleanliness London has ever witnessed, and that would be dreadful. So I do have to check. Now, you may doubt the importance of this, but bear in mind, this is one of the only things that the Bible and the Koran actually agree on. <laughs> Honestly, most other things are up for debate, but this one's definitely a sticky wicket. Honestly. The gestation of Troy Hawk, the actual mannerisms and, and whatnot. Did you just watch a lot of 1930s and 1940s Errol Flynn? I watched a lot of David Niven. Oh, is it David a Niven? A lot of David right. Niven. It comes off more Errol Flynn, but the whole thing, I listened to both of his audio books. I read both of his books. I watched every appearance on Parkinson. Um, it was always David Niven for me. Mm. And it's coming off more Errol Flynn now. Um, I think because I, I look more Errol Flynn mm. than David Niven but yeah that's where it came from and some of the mannerisms came from David Niven but a lot of them just sort of uh, sounds a bit wanky but it sort of happened organically and people would say oh, I liked it when you did that and I'd be like I, I didn't know I did that but the, the funny thing is, is is not being aware of the mannerisms is, is good because as soon as you're aware of what it is you're doing subconsciously that people like, there's a chance that you'll start to contrive it and then the appeal is reduced. Now, that's how I'll, I'll try and unpack that. Uh, there was a girl called Nikki on Big Brother uh, who was uh, kind of always shrieking and kicking off and, and doing all these things that were very natural to her. Two-Face fucking bastards! Two-Face fucking hate them! And she got kicked out, right? Mm. So she got a chance to see what the public had liked about her. She got a chance to see what they liked about her mannerisms. She'd clocked all of that. And then she got brought back into the house. Now, this is about season five. What was really interesting for me is as soon as she became aware of what people had responded to positively, she started forcing it. And mm. it was really like abrasive. So when you when you do things like naturally, it's 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 kind of quite a battle to keep them natural if you're aware that they work, mm. so you don't force them. So it has to you have to sort of almost forget you're doing it, but keep it in your arsenal if you know what I mean. Mm. So all those mannerisms are quite natural in their reactions, but it's sort of I have to keep them that way, otherwise it doesn't work. Do you? Do you do, oh do you, no, I completely no, I completely get it because otherwise you can it can turn into parody. And also, it, if mm. something happens naturally and chemically, it connects with an audience. Mm. You know what I mean? It's the same way, like, if you're playing a bass solo, God forbid. Mm. <laughs> but if you're, like, lost in it and really just shutting your eyes and on that, that will communicate through your fingers, through the bass, through, mm. to the audience, and they'll feel that. Whereas if you're mechanically playing something and your mind's elsewhere, the audience isn't going to be taken mm. on, on your little masturbatory bass solo journey as much <laughs> but you know what I mean I know exactly that's obviously a drummer's perspective <laughs> listen the rhythm section is a, a holy thing I, I appreciate yeah. that but uh, so David Niven I'm a huge David Niven fan and there's this uh, um, he kind of represented a, a British thespian spirit which is just we just don't produce really, them like that anymore really positive as mm. well and that's the thing I always try and reinforce with Troy Hawk like if I talk to people in the crowd 
I'm always going to make it positive. I'm always going to sort of not denigrate, you know. I'm always going to just sort of fluff people up mm. a little bit in, in, you know, see the positives and be very polite and charming. Because there is a level of anxiety about coming to a comedy club. Oh, no, the comedian's going to talk to me and so on. Now, listen, there's going to be none of that. None of that badinage. I may occasionally talk to one or two of you, but it's all going to be very, very positive. If anything, I'm going to give you compliments. And it's the same in the material. It's finding positives where there wouldn't normally be positives. Um, that is sort of that innocence and naivety of this homeschooled guy who's just discovering everything for the first time and seeing mm. it through, you know, these new sort of sepia-tinted like view of the world kind of thing, you know, with a bit of a twist, obviously. It's definitely a twist. And was there a particular reason why Troy is from Croydon? Um, have you any links to the place? Uh, do you know what? I don't. Uh, it was just the most atypical place I mm. can think of. It's a great juxtaposition between yeah. the way he is and the way, and the, well, and, Croydon and the way is. Croydon is. Yeah. Um, basically, yeah. But the th- funny thing is, is uh, I, f- I did a, a video where I, I filmed sort of Troy just showing up at Wilkinson's. Welcome to Wilkes, man. Baskets are just there. Just to work there. Mm. And uh, I did that in Epsom. I've just done a video where Troy goes into a Weatherspoons and it's going to come out next week, but I sort of bring the material about Weatherspoons to life in a Weatherspoons. In Leatherhead, I don't think I'd do it in Croydon, but it would probably be more interesting if I did. I've just got to grow some balls. <laughs> I just think, you know, because I was talking, there's a, another comic called Elliot Steele uh, who is from Croydon and I was struggling with the show till about June and then suddenly it all came together and he was like, just go down to Croydon and just stand there and be Troy just see what happens and that's quite a good Elliot still if you know him and um, and I was like yeah that would be the best idea but no it's fucking terrifying but I'm gonna I'm gonna have to you know I mean, in a way the way that you convey Mr. Hawke's experiences in Croydon it's as though you already have but to actually experience that to experience yeah. the oh, a lot of the stuff the welcoming spirit of uh, Croydon's yeah. finest everything I say um, that Troy's sort of heard is has actually been said to me when I've been dressed as Troy, flyering, like whatever. You know what I mean? Because I can't write anything that's funnier or better than things that people have actually said to me or said to me as Troy. And at that point, it won my attention. Is that you? You're a knobhead! So, mate, 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 you're a knobhead. Now, I obviously didn't have a clue what a knobhead was. But here's the thing he wasn't angry. If anything, he was pleased. It was almost as though he spent the entire day looking for one. <laughs> he spent the entire day looking, oh, there he is! Uh, this is a knobhead! There he is, I've seen one. It was an ornithologist of some kind. You know, I had a book with all the markings and maybe he was playing a game of knobhead bingo with a friend of his in the car. There's a knobhead house, I went, damn it. Anyway, no idea, you know, and I thought, well, I was actually quite relieved. I was like, I have a label, I have a label, I have something that I actually am, this is fabulous. If you, if you take a conversation just between two friends, write it down verbatim, like that's going to look hilarious on paper. Mm. There's a lot of stuff because it's natural. It's it's you you connect to that. 
you know, do you know do you know what i mean it's absolutely like, yeah. yeah i think because you, you can overwork something and if, if it's just two people you know just babbling along the, yeah. the humor you've got comes all the natural naturally. subtext mm. yeah exactly so troy hawk's first appearance on stage when when did that take place was that part of that um this is your life 2012 type? yeah right yeah so and people immediately like you said it was the first character when i was playing this portuguese character i'd come out and i'd start and people were like the fuck is this and i'd have to fight i'd actually have it within the gigs and i think it, it made me a better comic but i'd almost every gig i'd start with a minute of Mm, that I'd have to break down. Uh, Troy was the first character, because I've done other characters as well that have had the same effect. I've, I had a Grimsby uh, docks worker who's based on a real person I met who had a brain injury and turned into a, a Scrabble fanatic. Uh, he was called Q10. And basically he was a street fighter come Scrabble uh, champion who'd been booted out of the league for t- intimidating opponents. And he used, to, uh, he used to break down words into Scrabble value. So, you know, like break, three, one, 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 five, break. 11 good word you know yeah that is 11 yeah but yeah so I had to learn all the scrabble values and sort of but again that's sort of a high concept thing and, and people would like it but it'd take them a minute but with Troy I found as soon as I came out people were like I know this guy I know someone like him I know what's going on here mm. and it was it was I'd, I'd slot right in and it was just it was just, just sort of yeah making life a bit easier for myself I also had a, an Aussie, ex-Aussie rules footballer who turned into an art critic called Nobo Johnson. So I've made life very difficult for myself. <laughs> There's a theme that I've detected where in the case of... Yeah, yeah, which I quite like with, with Troy. It's almost as though he is from another era and it's a whole kind of culture clash between everything, all those lovely David Niven meets Errol yeah. Flynn values and, and how they clash with Croydon with your chat from Grimsby it's the idea of somebody that you wouldn't assume uh, having such an interest in Scrabble suddenly becomes yeah. this amazing whiz yeah. and he was an actually he was actually a guy I met a lovely guy uh, but terrifying like I was I'd done a gig in Cleethorpes and I was heading home and I'd done this Portuguese character mm. and this boy, hey, Roberto Roberto and I was like, uh, great gig, mate. What, what are you doing? Come and meet me at Hype Bar. Come on, let's go out. Let's go out. And I was in a hotel. I just got a takeaway. I was going to watch a UFC card that I'd sort of uh, had on a hard drive. I was like, yeah, I might come and see you in half an hour. Like, I'm, I'm just going to go back and eat this. And I was like, no way am I going to go and meet this madman in this empty club on a Sunday night in Cleethorpes. And I finished my curry. The fight I was watching finished in about 30 seconds. This guy got starched in the first round. And I was like, do you know what? Fuck it. Why not? I went to meet this guy. And he was so compelling and he just, just fascinating. And within about five minutes, I was like, there's something in this guy. He's, he's phenomenal. Like the other thing I realized was that, um, he was the hardest guy in town. Like the, the, he had this aura about him. Like the bouncers were sort of nervous around him. Like I'd walk into it at club. I walked into this club flares. It was pretty much empty. It's just a couple of, you know, ne'er do wells in the corners. He went to the toilet and people were like looking at me like sharks, like look who the fuck is this. <laughs> and then as soon as this dude came back out, everyone was like, eyes oh, to uh, the table. He's yeah, right. Jesus Christ. So I had this force field around me for the whole night. He was a great guy, great guy. But I, I took an essay and he was very, very intelligent as well and but he was like i never get to talk like this all my mates are on fucking cork never get to talk this is great you know but walking around with his palms out like a panther just ready to strike at any moment is phenomenally interesting more intelligent than he looked so i sort of tried to take him and you know boil, boil this guy into another character 
And the Australian rules football chap who became an arts critic, was that actually based on anybody that you'd Fuck met? no. Right. That was just taking two things and just sticking <laughs> them together and see what happened. That can work sometimes. Uh, I had a, a, a character in 2013 who was a Glaswegian train spotter who thought he was Adele. And... Uh, that was that's a combination that was, that was a bit of a, that was a bit of a struggle that one but i committed to it and that was a real 20 percent that was a real 20 percent of that one uh thick glaswegian accent but convinced but telling adele's life story that was uh yeah that, that didn't have much shelf life that one beyond beyond looking funny on paper <laughs> that definitely is a a mustard character a little bit goes a long way yeah yeah and with regards to being able to sustain the accent of a character for a long while... Never never been a problem for some reason. Mm. And also never been a problem coming out of character. Like, I, I kind of stay... Unless I force myself out of character, which I don't really do as Troy. I used to do it as Filberto sometimes, and it was a lot of shock value because so many people had just bought that I was this mm. foreign guy. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I find it quite... People say, like, oh, you improvise in character. And it's, it's never something... It's always something that's come quite easy. Like, you know, easier than sort of... Easier than writing jokes. Easier than a lot of things. Just mm. being able to riff in character. And over time with Troy... And this is going to sound pretentious as fuck, but... Hit me. All right. So recently as Troy, it's, it's felt like... I don't know what I'm going to say next. So it's like, I've got to a stage where I'm sort of looking at it from above. It's like, I put the smoking jacket on, slip my hair down, put the tash on. And it's like, I, I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth. And mm. sometimes it feels like I'm watching it as well. Going like, oh, wow. And that's why at the beginning you said, how much is Milam Cape? How much is, you know, Troy? Now it's less and less and less and less me. And the act is getting way, way better. And it's sort of, you know, crystallizing and, and becoming its own little entity which I don't think I've ever really managed to get to with any other character. Mm. Going back to... Certainly not the Glaswegian train spotter who thought he was Adele. My, my that, words, that never yeah. became a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> Why would it? <laughs> um, did he sing any of Adele's songs? Yeah, yeah, really badly. Right, yeah. in, a, yeah. the, the, in a thick Glaswegian yeah, accent. Yeah, oh. masculine thick Glaswegian accent. Oh, yeah. nice. Uh, well, sometimes. And in addition to playing drums i presume that you must have had a thespian background as well a little bit not really um i did a meisner course for a year i've done like a uh, couple of adverts a uh, couple of bits on tv and stuff but not really like form formulate sort of actor training mm. uh, just uh, just bits and bobs you know it, it wasn't something that you really wanted to pursue uh, as such. What, what to actually come kind of enroll on on the Meisner course? That, that's. Did you have a goal in mind at that time? I think I just started doing stand up, and I thought it would make me a better stand up and a better actor. So, so that was happening in tandem with the with yeah. the comedy. It didn't yeah. precede it. Yeah, and. I think it did as well because it's all about putting your focus out there i think mm. as a stand-up if all your focus is on the audience and not you don't have an inner reel playing what you think you look like i think that takes away from the energy your output mm. i think if all your focus is on the audience you're in the room you know and you're reacting to them a lot quicker like something happens you're on it straight away because you're already out there like your focus is already out there and that's what my is all about mm. so apparently you're more compelling when you're not when you're completely focused on something in the same way that when you get someone who's lost in something, their face is actually quite interesting to look at because they're, they're totally unaware of, they're totally absorbed and the face takes on a different quality. And that's, that's, that's what it kind of gets to, mm. you know, I mean, 
you certainly don't do things by halves when you yeah. kind of moved away from the drum kit and uh, immersed yourself in the, the comedy world. Yeah. I mean, you, you went in hard. Yeah. I, I don't think there are that many comedians that would kind of look to, you know, Meisner or, or any um, kind of thespian kind of training model. And But it speaks volumes. I think that's why these characters are living and breathing. Well, this one is, like, some of them haven't. There hasn't, they haven't all sort of worked as well as this one for me. Mm. Like, I've, it's, it's like kind of like... Uh, when you when you meet the person when you meet your you know wife like I always think like you need 50 of the wrong ones to know the difference you know the right one comes along mm. and it's felt a little bit like that with the characters as well it's like by having the wrong ones or having ones that I've tried to force or haven't worked when one actually does start working uh, quite naturally it's like I, I know the difference you know? Mm. 2012 Troy Hawk makes his first appearance on stage what's the timeline between that and the unflappable troy hawk sh show that i saw yeah earlier this year i did um i did uh so he had a section in 2013 and then i started doing this bizarre thing in my my weekend gigs like my living where I dress as Troy, start as Philberto and morph into Troy just because I was so, I knew that I was enjoying Troy more. And I, it was like, I was sort of, I had one foot on the comfortable ship that was earning me money that was going nowhere. And another foot on this raft, this really unsteady, shaky thing that I actually really liked the look of that I didn't have a fucking clue where it was going. Mm. But I did this meld character, which was even more confusing to audiences. I used to wear a, a Wilco jacket and reveal that I worked at Wilco's like five minutes into the, I don't know what the fuck I was doing. I mean, I still got laughs and still, it still kind of worked, but really left a lot of people bemused. And eventually I sort of jumped right into doing Troy and that I did a 2014 show um, called, uh, just called Troy Hawk and uh, that was in the Gilded Balloon and it was it was it was good it was sort of it was ultimately poking fun at uh, sanctimonious white middle class people who didn't have an issue of their own so they piggybacked onto others in a sort mm. of social justice sort of warrior type way um, whilst at the same time raising some sort of good points about feminism racism stuff like that it was you know it was, it was fun but it was more of a sort of uh, it was more I was writing something I don't know this this year's show felt a lot a lot more natural to the character mm. like I think that 2014 Troy Hawk show was good and I got sort of funnily enough I got better reviews for that overall than I did for this year's show um, but I think this year's show was a lot more uh, honest to the character as opposed to that other show where I was putting like political values on this sort of homeschooled, naive 1930s guy, mm. you know, and, and this, this, this show's funnier. It's got, uh, it's got more to it. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's, it takes a while for the character to sort of form. And I think I was sort of doing that in 2014. It was in good shape. It was good. Um, I used to carry a feather around. Uh, based on a Parkinson interview that he did with Helen Mirren, where Helen Mirren was just carrying a feather. And he's like, why are you carrying a feather? It was that really horrible one where he was phenomenally sexist. And he's, he said, why are you carrying a feather? And she said, well, it was in my hair. And I thought it looked really silly. So I thought, carry it. And I was like, I love that logic. Like, Troy's going to carry a feather. And even now, people are like, Where are the, where's the feather? But it was like, couldn't do anything with it. It looked hilarious. I was sort of carrying this feather. But then I was like, fuck, how do I justify carrying a feather? I can't. I can't justify carrying a feather the whole time. Mm. So I got rid of the feather. 
Perhaps if you had the feather um, in the 2016 show, those uh, reviewers that were less than kind. <laughs> Bastards. Why? Oh, I still got, no, I got like, the worst review I got was a three star. But, oh, that's not. Yeah, it's not. I got, I got like uh, two fours, a nice three and a half, um, and uh, a three. I got like good reviews. I got some, uh, but that 2014 Troy Hawk show, I pretty much just got like fours and a five. Mm. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I just know it's a better show. I know. And that's more important. Yeah. Uh, two years ago, you were at the Gilded Balloon. This year, Free Fringe. Yeah. How did you go about making that decision? Oh, of- very, very easily. Like, mm. um, the Gilded Balloon's a great venue. Uh, but at the end of it, you're looking at maybe uh, three, four grand of debt, if you're lucky. Mm. If you're lucky. And also, a crowd of people who don't know who you are, who sit there, and then you have to justify sort of a £10 price tag to, mm. to people who are like, right, this better not be shit. In the Free Fringe, when I was doing uh, Free Fringe package shows that year, I saw sort of up for it crowds who were just like sitting in a room enjoying themselves. It was a lot more relaxed. It was a, a, lot, a much better environment, in my mind, for comedy. Mm. Uh, so I decided to go free, and then... I just found it more relaxed. I found the crowds more relaxed. I found it more fun. It was less staid. Um, just really enjoyed it and didn't lose any money. I actually made money, you know. My word. Right. You, yeah. So you did the fringe and you actually yeah. returned yeah. home with money. Yeah. Well, well, that's simply elementary. My word. Yeah. That's, uh, so meeting and greeting people afterwards with the bucket. Yeah. Makes a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, first of all, like, you very quickly... Like, like there's an initial sense of weirdness and shame that literally disappears in a fucking day because you're like, hold on a second. Me being self-conscious about this is a hundred percent affecting my income directly. Um, so you very quickly go, no, you know, all I'm doing is I'm cutting out the middleman. You know, people like it, they should pay. And once you get that into your head, uh, you deliver your bucket speech with a bit more confidence, very to the point. Something really funny happened. It might have been in the show you were in. Mm. I'm not sure. There was a guy who came in, because uh, I know it was one of the late ones. You came to one of the late ones. And he, he came in, and I was greeting people at the door, which I also enjoyed, because it's always like getting them as they come in, giving them a little smile. Mm. Sort of. As they come in before they've sat down, they've got an idea, if they weren't sure before of what they're going to see. And a guy came in, who's very well-dressed, and he goes... I've got to go in half an hour. I saw you at a show earlier. I've got something booked in at nine. I really wanted to sort of catch you, but I have to leave in half an hour. Do you mind me coming in? It was really polite and lovely. And part of me was like, uh, you know, but I was like, yeah, no, it's fine. You know, come in. So we sat in front. So I'm like, oh, all right. You know, uh, halfway through this guy is going to get up from the front row and leave. So mm. as soon as I started the show, I referenced it. I was like, this guy's come in. He says he's going to leave halfway through. You know, just so you know, it's not a judgment call. All right, just so everyone can relax. Yeah, he's, he's probably having fun. Okay, he's just got to show it. The right? elephant in the room has been identified. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, there's, there's about halfway through the show, I get to this guy's perfect. Like, I get to a bit that gets a big laugh and he slowly stands up. Like, he times it. He de- he's, he's very empathetic to what he's doing. He's, he's waited till the perfect moment. So he gets up slowly, waits for me to clock him, take control of the situation. I said, and this is the guy. And now, you know, I told you. He's so he walks over to the bucket and sticks a tenner in the bucket, right? In full view of everyone. So I'm like, this is like, oh, this is the best walkout anyone has ever had. Like this guy, mm. he's, he's told me he's going to walk out. He's walked out, he's stuck a tenner in. Like 
I've never had a walkout before. It's a lie, obviously, because I have, everyone has. Never had a walkout before. I'm going to remember this one forever. Look at this guy. This is how you do it. Like, go on a big round of applause, whatever. So I carry on the show, and the show's great fun. And then as I'm going along, as I get to the, the end, get the bucket, send it, suddenly it's like tenor, 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 tenor. I'm like, you fucking kidding me? What's going on? And of course, it didn't take, you know, it was afterwards, I was like, of course, this guy set the pace. Mm. This guy in front of everyone said, this is what you should do. And everyone either consciously or subconsciously registered that. And I hadn't asked for a tenor. It's standard to sort of say, if you liked it, stick a five for it. That's like mm. a standard thing. It's fair enough. And I was talking to a friend of mine afterwards. I was like, he was like, why would you not have a plant to do that every show? And I was like, yeah. I mean, it feel a bit disingenuous, but yeah. yeah. I mean, fuck yeah. And I told another comic and he's like, oh, we're totally doing that tomorrow. Then I told another comic and he said, oh, Comic X has been doing that the whole month. So this guy's like a street performer. Uh, so you can't tell a street performer anything about the neurolinguistic programming involved in getting people to give you money, mm-hmm. doing something for free. But he had someone in the crowd, apparently, who, you know, every day would stand up and say, I think the show's worth 20 quid, you know, stick it in the bucket. He, he totally got onto that. Now, I, I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things that might become a standard tactic mm. that might actually have people blanching. And they're, they're like, oh no, fuck that, trying to manipulate me. I don't think, I, I wouldn't consciously try and do it, but it was really interesting watching it play out naturally. And there might've even been people in that room who thought that was all staged. I mean, quite possibly, in any case, even if they thought that, they were still there mm. and in enjoying it. Yeah. And then suddenly a monetary value was placed on it. Yeah. And then yeah. The, the whole... But if it had given me a quid... Mm, I think the outcome would have been very, very different. that pound coin landed mm. in the bucket, he would have quartered my entire, you know, income probably for that mm. day. I had a, a huge change of attitude at Fringe 2016. I used to be dismissive of the free fringe i got that really really wrong and saw some amazing things yeah. I, I used to assume if it if it wasn't part of the, was, the mainstream crap. fringe it did was you be see crap. the acts on in the city calf uh, I, I did paul McCann, I did. three main martin alfie brown eric lampire it was like great phenomenal great phenomenal yeah. and and i was paying what i would have well less probably at the end uh, about the what set, did I you mean, stick in did you stick in a fiver i would go for the tenor oh it, nice yeah one. because yeah. That's what I was accustomed to paying. Yeah, yeah. And, and I have to say, every free... Sh- I never saw any of the free fringe stuff for free because yeah. everything I saw was genuinely up to standard. If something had been dreadful, would you still have put a tenor no, off? Would you? No. No, that's good. G- genuinely. Yeah. I mean, number one, I, I'm up there. I'm by no means flush. Yeah. And if something was rubbish, oh, my word. Yeah, I, I'd... Yeah. I'd happily walk by and not say anything i, I wouldn't you just even look, do. To look at the floor yeah, yeah. I, I, I would that's I would. funny that's a really funny dynamic when you're there with a the bucket and you've had a if, if if you've had a bad show then it's kind of okay i mean i think i had one or two sketchy ones at the beginning but by and large the show it was you know the the, the most satisfying run i think i've ever had but you do get people who go into the free fringe with no intention of paying at the beginning, regardless of whether. And, and it's kind of like, I almost, I was struggling with what to say in the speech because when people would walk past all self-conscious, I'd be like, all right, if you've got no money, great. You've enjoyed the show, great. But I, I hate that you feel bad at this point. At the same time, if I say in my bucket speech, oh, if you don't have any money, don't worry about it. I don't know if that's going to then discourage people from putting money in. I think it would. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. So I don't want to, you know, there are obviously students and stuff. And when people come past and say, 
I really like the show. I don't have any money. That was like, great. You've, you've, that, you've taken away the thing that I didn't enjoy, which is you suddenly walking past. And the worst is when you see someone who's really enjoyed it, who doesn't look poor. Like, like well, how does someone look fucking poor? You know what I mean? But <laughs> someone who's really enjoyed it just sort of walked straight past, like kind of not giving two bucks. Like, it's like they've, they've, the, kind of, the kind of person who would, if they haven't bought around on a night out with their mates would consider it a win you know you'd always you're always going to get yeah. those people but yeah whatever yeah I know yeah. a few of those yeah and I would not send them to one of your shows uh, thanks <laughs> and uh, but the I mean the, the bucket thing it, it's the bucket dynamic the first time that I came across it at the, the fringe I had all those things going through my mind and I think I went to see Pippa Evans um, oh, she's at, great uh, at goodness abandonment yeah and that was my first exposure at this fringe of a of a free show and and initially um, that's going to turn you around on free shows my words yeah, yeah. And that was the first one yeah. that was the first one that I saw and believe me I kind of wrestled with the whole notion of this is early afternoon it's free I know that this particular uh, performer has you know a really impressive pedigree but oh my word yeah, yeah. And, and that's really I'm embarrassed to say that and no, I've just being honest though. I and I've and that particular show turned me around and then and suddenly it's just all bets are off in terms of how this operates and I think it's happening more and more in the fringe with more and more people mm. yeah I mean the bottom line is the bottom line is that there's a bottom line it's very very expensive for the performers to be yeah, doing it yeah. I mean you'd mentioned quite a considerable debt if oh, yeah, you yeah. Were, were doing it you know in the mainstream Gilded oh, Balloon shit, yeah, yeah. Um, come, you know setting and but that's uh, you know, ridiculous and the, and the idea that you can you can control things and uh, yeah, I think that the bucket is a fine thing mm. initially I, I I had expected the bucket and, and feared it would be a bit like I'm not a religious person but I do remember being in in church and having <laughs> you know having sort of a you know a, a tray with change you know kind of passing by and and, and it's and, and I didn't want to be I didn't want it to be a, a, a guilted balloon whereby I'm you know sort of I'm putting money in there out of guilt or duty but um the, the one thing about did it, you say guilted balloon? yes it was I play it was a play on words wow yes <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if that worked but no no it didn't I tried though yeah it, it wasn't even well delivered I'm so no, sorry no I think you overthought it if yeah. you'd have just like slipped it without yeah it probably would have worked <laughs> I probably wouldn't have picked up on it you had a tiny second's hesitation before you said it you're like shall I oh fuck it it's coming out already <laughs> yeah it's a guilty balloon but the one thing is it, it's expensive to go up in up to Edinburgh um, when things is happening yeah. so yeah by no means it, if I hadn't been impressed I'd, I'd walk by I'd walk on by and, yeah. and then some yeah. but uh, it, it's um, you said fuck you slit your throat so no one has to listen to the yeah. shit that you call comedy ever again and no I'm not giving you any money yeah, yeah. and one more thing can't yeah and uh, I mean there were a couple of things that I paid good money for and you know got tickets and uh, I, I wish that I could get a refund like what oh and I don't, no, I'm not going to mention any names you tell me later no I will tell you later most of the stuff was absolutely brilliant what's the anatomy of your fringe day a typical fringe day oh. let's say it's the middle of yeah. August yeah. Um, start from your full Scottish breakfast or no, porridge way off man I'm, I've, I've like got a, a crazy sort of borderline autistic sort of groundhog day routine to every Edinburgh I do um, it's kind of like boot camp uh, so basically I'll, I'll wake up uh, if I haven't got an early show I'll wake up 
I'll take a catalogue of uh, nootropic supplements, immuno sort of advanced. You can get this uh, stuff from this uh, company called Onnit. Uh, called it's called immune tech or something and you take two a day and it puts this little bacteria in your system that gets all your immunity system fighting so basically I don't have any illness throughout the whole of Edinburgh ever uh, take these other nootropics like take sage and stuff all this stuff to keep your brain active I'll, I'll probably have something like eggs on their own or porridge or just some like fuel type food go to the gym come back meditate probably do like the, the way this year went two or three little uh, package shows on the free fringe which is where you go to lineups and they really bolster your numbers so I'd go and do those uh, come back um, maybe have another half hour something to eat go do my show come back after my show uh, stack up all the fucking tens and fives and pound coins mm. and, and log everything I've sort of earned that day and then strip off the moustache and go out and have a couple of drinks and sort of socialise and see my friends uh, but I try and burn it at both ends so I wouldn't get hammered and have a couple of drinks mm. and that still meant I could get up go to the gym and not get completely fucked up until the last week when the gym went out the window and a lot of this sort of self-discipline went out the window but the funny thing was is that last week doing hungover shows were the best shows I think I had because when you're hungover that portion of your brain that might commit itself to nerves or internal monologue that you don't need it's just almost like too knackered. So sometimes, and a lot of comedians can find this, but obviously it tips at a certain point. But your hungover gigs, where you're slightly more laissez-faire, can be the best ones. Because mm. you're not self-conscious. You're just like giving it. Sometimes, though, you haven't got enough energy to give enough. And that's when it, obviously, the balance gets tipped. So the supplements help to keep the festival uh, scurvy at yeah, bay. Yeah, yeah. And... And you only really start to imbibe. I lose weight like a motherfucker at Edinburgh. Like some people put away on. I probably lose routinely about a stone. Really? Yeah. Normally it's the other way around. I know, I know, I know. In quite a noticeable way. I remember yeah. seeing a number of, of comedians who are well known on television screens. And it's quite shocking to see them <laughs> towards the end of August Rotund when they've been fuck. on it. Yeah. And that degree of discipline doesn't really surprise me. This, yeah. this is the coming from a person that went the, the Meisner route. Um, in tandem with, with comedy so it's yeah. something that you're you know quite um, passionate about but I'm also guilty of taking things a bit too seriously mm. you know um, there was a comedian's boxing event in uh, February this year and uh, I'd sort of done a lot of sparring stuff anyway but I trained like a maniac I did like five sessions a week loads of sparring and just took it like over prepared in, and I knew I'd overprepared within 10, 20 seconds of the fight. And I was like, oh God, I'm being a bully. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've, I've taken this way too far. This, um, all this hyper awareness of everything that you're about, body, mind, uh, I, I sound like a yoga instructor now, yeah. apologies. I try and take responsibility for everything because I think if you don't, you don't improve. So if I have a bad gig, I'm not going to look at the, the, the room and go, oh, it's a shit room. Uh, that's why I had a bad gig. Because how am I going to improve on that? I'm going to go, no, it wasn't unplayable. I've fucked up. And I've got to think about how I fucked up and why. So that can leave me kind of running it over in my head. But at the same time, I think if you don't do that, if you don't acknowledge where your liability is, you don't get better. And I kind of take that attitude through everything. Mm. And I was talking to a friend of mine uh, recently. I've always considered myself very left wing. But he said the idea that you should take ownership over yourself and be responsible for yourself to that extent is quite conservative, which was a bit of a shock to me because I'm not like 
outlaying that to other people and mm. sort of from my own perspective like he was saying like if you were an alcoholic do you think it's on you to sort that out and my self politics is yes if i'm doing something wrong if i have a problem it's on me to sort it out mm. um I, I always sort of i don't know i think there's a danger in c constantly considering yourself a work in progress because ultimately you're never going to be satisfied. But at the same time, the, the, the idea of considering yourself a work in progress means you constantly improve. Mm. So I'm sort of stuck somewhere in that. I guess ultimately, I think if I have a bad gig, and this might be extrapolated politically, I think if I have a bad gig, yes, I will blame myself, right? Mm. Uh, could the room have been better? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yes, maybe. So that's the, you know, could the people have been like facing the right way could there have been no circular tables could the lighting have been better could the sound have been better yes could the system have been better yes mm. but it's also on me to be as good as i can be and and do my sort of side as well so i don't know i'm just getting into politics for the first time so i don't know if that makes me a raging conservative or a conservative with a small c i'm i'm kind of like a baby about it like politics my god i mean that really that, that opens up a really big can of worms in terms of of how one views their their kind of political um, allegiance. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't. And then suddenly I, that must make me a raging Tory, and I'm not. I'm absolutely... Yeah. But then taking responsibility, uh, a flip side to that is we live in society, and if we don't take responsibility in terms of how we interact with people and, uh, and as a result are dismissive of rules and regulations, spraying graffiti everywhere, not paying taxes and, and whatnot. Um, that's not exactly from a, from caring about know, society, from thinking about society as, yeah. as a whole, um, that would, that would seem to be, I don't know. Is it? Are you suddenly a, a Tory if you care about yourself um, in terms of if you put the uh, in terms of responsibility on, yourself. Well, on your, this yourself? This is it. See, I'm very politically naive, but I was talking to a friend of mine, and and he said, if uh, the whole self empowerment thing is quite conservative, that was a bit of a shock to me because I've always considered myself. Lefty. But but then, what would be the the lefty take on how you would view that? So let's I say let's say you just did a shitter of a gig. This is the this is the right wing view. Because mm. this this guy's sort of moderately right wing. I wouldn't say he's completely right wing, but no, I think he. But his view would be, oh, you blame the system, and the system has to get fixed, um, and it's not on the individual. I just don't. It's not as simplistic as that, is it? It's 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 a somewhere in the middle. So I don't know if that makes me a liberal. I've got to read more. I've got to read Chomsky or something, or you know, yeah. I, I guess you've got to listen to every argument. Mm. Get Gore Vidal's take on this type of thing, but I, I don't know. Would, would Chomsky view a comedian having a bad gig and then taking responsibility for it as? <laughs> this is what I don't know. This is why I've got to read. This is why I've got. I've got to sort of. I mean, uh, to be honest, I'm like, you know, I've never thought about politics because I've never had to. So the other thing I'm, I'm quite wary of, like dipping my toe in politics at the same time, is the horribly subjective nature of politics. It's like. Um, when I was trying to be a psychotherapist, what I learned was that ideally as a psychotherapist, you take all of your views and your opinions and you remove them from the room mm. because that's not the place for them. You're there to facilitate, uh, you know, a, a client's sort of um, well-being and advancement, but with no opinions or judgments of your own because that's subjective. So you take that out of the room. And I think that's the way that someone's political opinion should be. But... I don't know how easy it is to... to, 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 to is that making any sense? No, it makes perfect sense. Because everyone's mm. politics are, are, are subjective, mm. it seems. 
this is why I've got to read more, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself in trouble just by ignorance. But, I mean, in this particular case, it's more p- political of uh, politics of the self rather than, you know, we're not having a, a, yeah. an in-depth conversation about Brexit at like, the moment. I've, I've never been interested in politics because I've always been more interested in the individual. Mm. Like, I, I did a psychology degree. I was trying to be a psychotherapist. I've always been more interested in people uh, as, as individuals, like mm. what makes a person do certain things as opposed to sort of you know, a wider ranging social aspect of mm. stuff. I've always just always been about the, the one person. So uh, I think now I'm, I'm trying to start sort of casting my net out a bit wider and looking, you know, You're, I think cause I've got kids now as well, thinking about it a lot more. Yeah, certainly that, that must really kind of alter your perspective on things yeah. in a big way. When you were training to be a, a, a psychotherapist, yeah. your parents, do they have expectations that you would go that route? No, they basically like the the, the great thing my mum and dad did was uh, do well in your A levels, get into uni, right? You go do what you want now. You know what I mean? Was that no, that was, was no, it. That yeah, was yeah. the box that was yeah, ticked. Yeah, that was it. Just as long as we'll get you to here, you you have the credit to go and take everything else from there in any direction you want, and that's kind of how I want to be with my kids as well. I think that's the best way to to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, people who are training to be a psychotherapist, in mm. my experience, like mm. this is again very subjective, and this is as compared to people who are comedians, right? Mm. People who want to be comedians, people who want to be psychi- a psychotherapists, the nuttiest group of people I've I ever, can imagine ever yeah. been. Like to be to want to be a psychotherapist, I think you've had, myself included. Obviously, I'm in the the middle of that fucking Venn diagram of craziness, but like. <laughs> You, you have to have thought so much about your own actions, internalized and, and analyzed so much that you're like, you, you've done that to yourself so much uh, for good reason that you, 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 you want to do it as, as a job. Um, the nuttiest bunch of people I've ever, ever been around. Um, not, not necessarily in a bad way, do you know what I mean? But just like mm. kooky as fuck, way more kooky than comedians and that's saying something. I can't help but think a lot of people who go that particular route in terms of their studies and in terms of, of a vocation, there's going to be a, an element of self-diagnosis and people of trying course. to kind of work things out. Well, you have to work out your own shit if you want to be a psychotherapist because you can't yeah. pollute the room with it. Mm. That's the worst type of psychotherapist that pollutes the room with their own bullshit because it's such an important job. Mm. If I ever fall out of love with comedy, God forbid, I think I'd, I'd pick my training up again and do that. Milo, I've got a confession. Yeah. Initially... No, this is... No, I'm not having this fake bullshit. <laughs> right? You see, what, what, what Duke is trying to do here is set up a contrived thing. What's happened is we've taken a break and uh, he's, he sort of said, it's lovely because I've seen your character, but I didn't know you. So originally what I was going to do is I was going to have an interview with you and then an interview with Troy. And the reason he was going to do that was in case me as a person, in case I was a total weapon. So that second interview with Troy was his cunt insurance, just in case I was a massively important, a disappointing human being. So this whole Milo, I've got a confession stuff. I'm not having it. <laughs> it's, it's disingenuous. I've said disingenuous three times in this fucking podcast. It's fun. You get ten pounds for for each of them. So it'd be as though three people have turned up to one of your shows. Awesome. And. Uh, Milo, thanks for, for not being a weapon. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so, certainly not a boring weapon. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. So it's always there. And it's always there anyway from the sounds of it. I think yeah. you know, doing what you're doing and 
just hearing your perspective on things yeah. and the way that you examine and analyze. I mean, you, you still use those oh, tools too much. in a like, big way. Too much. Massive mm. overthinker. The, um, I mean, there's the, the whole notion of the, the two sides of the comedian. That There's that person on stage who's absolutely hilarious. And then behind the scenes, there's the, the misery and, and the mm. sorrow. Um, do you feel that the psychotherapy training has helped you to be a, a bit more grounded in how you are um, off stage? No, oh, yeah. Possibly too grounded. Right. Because before I was trying to be a psychotherapist, um, before I was doing comedy, I was fun Bobby on weekends. Uh, to the point of, you know, annoyance. I was like uh, enthusiastic catalyst guy that made things happen. Like Keith Moon was my hero. I was like, let's see how many crazy things I can do. And as soon as I started doing comedy, it's like all of that had an outlet. It wasn't working at a job, just staring at the clock going, Friday, right, I can express myself. I can get out and fucking dance like a maniac and make all my friends laugh and probably be very, very fucking annoying. But because all that energy gets pent up, so it's got to explode out of the weekend. Where as soon as I started doing comedy, I became a very, very much more relaxed, chilled out and possibly bearable person to be around. Mm. So your earlier Keith Moon self, were you to meet him? Loved it. Oh, no. I tell you what, when I actually read uh, a proper, like, real... Um, biography about Keith Moon. Dear boy. Yeah, uh, yes. I realised what a prick he was. Because mm. up till then I'd only read like his mate Dougal's account, which was triumphing all the all the legendary stories and everything. Mm. And then I read about him being a wife beater and like, you know, ignoring his kids and stuff. And I'm I've kinda I'm like, all right, okay, this guy sort of yeah, I'm getting a clearer picture of what he was like. He's wrestling with his demons, that whole incident of kind of He's running over. fucking everyone and everything. Well, yeah, you know, but, indeed. But phenomenal, phenomenally talented. Like, Absolutely. Drummer. Amazing. That's what got me into drumming, is, is mm. watching Keith Moon on MTV uh, mime to uh, a song on the Smothers Brothers. Uh, I think it was... Uh, they did was, My Generation. Yes, that was Yes. It. And he loaded his drum kit with too much dynamite and, and sent Pete Townsend, deaf in one ear, live on TV. Mm. And I just saw him, the way he was as a drummer then, I was like, that's what I, that's fucking, um, wow, I want to do that. And wow. even in the interviews, he's absolutely fabulous. He's all over the place. Yeah. You know, he's got sloppy stage hands around here. <laughs> Keith, my friends call me Keith, you can call me John. Okay, John. You got sloppy stage hands around here. <laughs> Keith Moon's passing, I mean, it's, it, I, I wish it The Who a, hadn't carried on the, afterwards. It was after the Buddy Holly um, uh, premiere party. Mm. Apparently died... Uh, Anti-alcohol drugs. Indeed. Yeah. So the thing that he was trying to take to remedy his problems ended up yeah. ended up killing him. And it was a, a real pity because it was a, a big tour was planned. Who Are You had been finished. And uh, yeah. But what was lovely about that is that Entwistle was essentially taking the sort of typical drummer role. Whereas Keith Moon was like lead drummer. Mm. And they lost, obviously, like you say, they lost that dynamic. And as, uh, I sort of went through the albums. I, I found them when I was about 18. I was just like, it was just like having musical orgasms all over the place. And I'd sort of listen to the headphones and I'd try and sort of copy Keith Moon's drum patterns, which obviously then when you start working in a function band, doesn't quite correlate. No. But, you know, I obviously had to rein that in. But then as I got, as I sort of got a better drummer, I started to listen to other people uh, like uh, Chad from the Red Hot Chili Peppers and mm. uh, I think it, what's the guy who played drums for Dave Grohl's band 
blonde head guy. Taylor oh, uh, um, uh, uh, Taylor. Yeah. Taylor Hawkins. Hawkins. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely brilliant drummer. Yeah. Really, really, really I, I good. Because me, me and the bass player, basically, we, we get so bored. We'd both try and noodle and masturbate over mm. any, any, any breaks, any gaps. We'd almost like get competitive with it and it, it, it fucking up all the songs. So I would say to him, look, let's have a noodle amnesty, all right? You don't do your Seinfeld bullshit <laughs> and I won't do my Keith Moon bullshit, right? Mm. And how about we see how much better the song sounds? And they fucking did. Mm. They sounded so much better with Discipline. a tight, disciplined rhythm section. Mm. But then, prick that he was... Because when you're in a band with someone, you're doing five gigs a week, they have the ability to press your buttons on a level with members of your nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Like, you can get more upset by regular band members than, than fucking anyone. Like, I, 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 I remember seeing bands splitting up when I was younger, before I was in a band, going, why would you do that? Why would you split up when everything is going so well? Then having, I'm like, of course you'd fucking do that because it's driving you absolutely mm. mental. So we'd be playing along and the songs would be sounding great. And then he'd, and come give me a look. And I'm like, what the fuck do you think I'm, you think I'm not going to throw like massive triplets over the next bit and drown out you? Of course I fucking am. Fuck you. And it's going to fuck the song. And that's what you want. And you knew this would happen. You cunt. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. The, I'm just amazed that bands can stay together for any length of time. Yeah. And as soon as I got in the band with Tim and Lee, Lee um, Baker, <coughs> his name is the bass player, and he's the guy that sort of strikes the music. <clears throat> it was beautiful. He was so, everyone was so committed to the song every time. And mm. It was so lovely to be in a band like that and sort of see the difference you know, of a band that were absolutely committed to the song, not a band committed to sort of make themselves look good on a, you know, a fucking wedding. Who's going to notice a, a, a clever impro riff at a wedding? Anyway? No, they just want to hear the songs yeah, and want to be able do. to dance to it. Yeah, not, not hear what you lovingly call. Out of spite, I will do the same thing. <laughs> out of fucking just childish spite, I'll do exactly the same thing and fuck the song on back. You know, <laughs> just so I haven't lost any, well, moral low ground. You know, you were talking about imbibing a bit towards the end of the festival. Um, yeah. Is that a little bit of an ode to your kind of Keith Moon? No, nah, not really. I mean, it's... It sounds I, like it's still quite disciplined. Yeah, I don't really... I, 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 I don't sort of really drink that much, you know. I'm, I'll, I'll kind of like once a month maybe get a bit hammered and then I'll wake up the next day and it's like I've sort of cleared my hard drive. It's quite relaxing, yeah. but I won't need to do that sort of again for another month I won't really you know won't really drink anything I'm, my my worst vice is these damn vape things like uh, I do that too much but it doesn't seem it seems fine like it seems absolutely fine I don't think there's now you want to talk about my brain hemorrhage don't you no do you know what? I don't actually yeah. fuck right, it yeah, yeah. Right. Did, did it actually impact on your life in, yeah, in a big a way a little bit um, I yeah it was sort of uh, what was really weird was it was um April this year, and when I say brain hemorrhage, technically it was, but it was like the the, the, the most benign type of brain hemorrhage you can mm. have. It's called a subarachnoid non-aneuristic hemorrhage, right? Which is when you have a brain hemorrhage and your vein bursts, uh, you know, your, your brain gets starts of oxygen and then you, your, your facilities start to, you know, atrophy. And, and that's the, the stroke and the real serious shit. That's not what happened with me. What happened with me was a capillary burst, mm. right? So it's best case scenario. So it's capillary bursts. I'm in the boxing gym, like skipping. 
capillary bursts and it feels like there's a brick in my head and I'm like the fuck is that never had it and the the guy at trains like the lights nasty is the music and I was like yeah he goes you're having a migraine like get home I'm like never had a migraine in my life get home lying in bed just in agony my wife forces me to go to the doctor she gives me these strong painkillers take the strong painkillers fucking A no worries wake up at three in the morning absolute rage raging fucking headache take some more painkillers all right all right this isn't going away go to the hospital the next day uh the doctor's like you never had migraines no it's unlikely you're having a migraine but just to check we're going to give you a spinal tap mike all right fuck it fine it's going to be fine this is going to last a couple hours then i'm going to go home watch ufc and have a takeaway so again, have this spinal tap. The most painful thing that's ever happened to me. Uh, they, they try and draw out spinal fluid from your, uh, in between your vertebrae. And if they can't get it first time, they have to go in again. And if they are a millimeter off, they hit a nerve center that sends a lightning bolt down your whole side. Oh. So he, he was a millimeter off this guy. Oh. And I was like, the fuck, fuck you, fucking asshole. And someone from the next curtain went, language. And I was like, you can go <laughs> fuck yourself as well. And the nurse started laughing so much that they had to stop because I was like, you know, they, they need steady hands at that point. Um, so they take your spinal tap. I'm like, this is going to be fine. So a couple hours later, they're like, oh shit, you've got brain fluid in your spine. Get to the hospital straight away. So I'm like, ambulance. I'm like, what the fuck? Oh, you need to lie down. I'm like, fine. They get me there. And the guy's like, okay, so best case scenario is that you've, it's this thing. Something mm. like that. But it won't be. So don't think that. You know, you might have to have an operation. Have your head covered. I'm lying in bed going, fucking oh. what? So at this point, what was interesting is I completely relaxed because it was like powerless. It was out of my control. There was no point in getting stressed. It was like, this is happening. I'm on this ride. I want to see what happens. And as I'm, as I'm like, I had like an angiogram, which is where they put this camera through your thigh into your brain, right? Which sounds weird as fuck. Mm. When they described it to me, they told me they were going to put a camera in my groin to my brain. Right. Which of course I think is, is in my dick. Yeah. I think they're going to put a camera in my dick mm. and work its way up to the brain. I was mm. like, am I going to be awake for that? They're like, yeah. And I was like, fucking no way. And, I, and then they started, they're like, no, no, it's not actually in your, it's through your groin muscle. And I was like, okay, that's bad. Oh, right. I know, right. Yeah. I know. I mean, it still sounds. Yeah. But as this, what happens then is this camera goes through and they squirt this little ink on different parts of your brain to identify things. Mm. And they'll say things like, in a second, you're going to feel all hot down your left side. In a second, you're going to feel like tingles in your feet because these different nerve centers in your brain are being activated. It's fascinating. Anyway, like I'm lying there, like fucked, and I get this uh, email going, oh, you got a recall for this advert. <laughs> and it's in two days. And I'm thinking, oh, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. And then uh, the doctor comes in and he goes, hey, good news. It's this subarachnoid, non-arastic hemorrhoid thing. What's well, hemorrhoid, hemorrhage. So what's going to happen is uh, the blood passes down your spine out your waist and in about two weeks you're going to be fine so I had this sort of Malteser like lump of blood that I felt all the way down my my word but I went for this recall right and and I had to sprint it was this marathon advert and, and I was so in this like bonus area when you think something bad's going to happen and it doesn't it's like you get this two weeks where life's a gift and euphoria and you fucking whoa and mm. so I went into this recall like like shining and got the advert and they sort of bulked up my role tripled the pay it was like you know because I was just I was just like Captain Happy and uh, part of it involved me having my arms and legs completely waxed because I was a marathon runner I was a poser I had to be waxed and and spray tan and stuff and and, and the waxing was more painful than anything I'd experienced through brain hemorrhage like 
Absolutely, hands down, case closed. Right. Fucking horrendous. Her suits, uh, women who have to do this on a regular basis, and indeed men. Man, yeah, yeah, everyone. Poor people. Dude, it was, the, the backs of your legs is, is insane. Well, even worse than the, worse spinal, than the spinal tap. Yeah, yeah, much worse. So you you would prefer to have that lightning bolt going up your spine to... Uh, For three seconds than an hour of, of lying there. Zhk- just, oh, yeah. Now, the, you'd mentioned that uh, this is could possibly be the last performance of the unflappable uh, Troy Hawk show, yeah. um, but that there's a possibility of this going to um, Soho yeah. Theatre. Yeah. Would that be uh, as part of a, a month-long residency? No, or, right. no, it would be like one or two dates. Right. Yeah, I think to get a month-long residency at Soho Theatre, you need to be a major, major TV name, you know, which I'm not yet. Yet, so, yeah. Is the goal still to? Do you know what? What? Fuck it. The goal is just to get better. Uh, I've taken a lot of pressure off of myself, and and I'm enjoying getting better. And I think if you have your goal as tangible things like I've got to get on a TV show, I've got to get, you know, it's kind of self defeating because every day you're not getting on a TV show, you're losing. However, yeah. if your goal is just to get better and better and better. And uh, uh, it's a lot more satisfying long term. So my goal at the moment is to keep improving and keep getting better and keep getting the satisfaction of turning over new material that's getting better and mm. keep getting uh, more accomplished and more comfortable in this character. And, and, and that's, that's where I'm going at the moment. I mean, I've got like, um, I'm sort of after this year, this year's Edinburgh, I'm talking to a sort of couple of producers and stuff about radio commissions and things like that. But if you invest in that kind of thing too much, I mean, that's, so, that's such a like one in 30, one in 50 type mm. affair. I mean, basically, I'm just focused on improving, 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 like taking control of what I can control mm. and focusing on that and sort of letting everything else sort itself out. And it it's, uh, makes, makes, well, makes me a lot happier as a person. When will the, the next Troy Hawk show be ready? Uh, I'll, I'll start previewing a version that absolutely isn't ready in February. Uh, Leicester Comedy Festival and I think it'll probably be in some sort of sellable shape by May next year right June but I'm already working on new bits and, and new new routines and stuff but it's definitely not going away I mean I feel like I've found this groove with it and uh, I'm going to keep going with it and I'm enjoying it if people want to find out more about you online yeah uh, where I do think, they go uh, I, I need to update my website I'm a slack website guy um, but the website is mylomacabe.co.uk but like I, I haven't done the I've got to get on the fucking sort the gig list out um, Twitter is um, Facebook I'm sort of on more often uh, at Milo Comedy M-I-L-O on Twitter and um, just Milo McCabe on Facebook there's a picture of me looking pugilistic as Troy Hawk so then you'll know who I am because there's a few Milo McCabe's indeed but you're the pugilistic one I'm the pugilistic 30s one yeah no no weapons being held by you no weapons required Mm. Milo it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Dukey radio show honestly I just knew a guy with a bowler hat was coming around I had no (laughs) fucking idea what was going to happen you know what I mean just invited this complete stranger and it's actually been really good I really enjoyed it nice one Well, that's your lot. Milo McCabe, genuinely a renaissance man. And an incredible talent. I really love the fact that his goal is simply to get better, as well as to get a gig or two at the Soho Theatre. I reckon in a year's time, Milo McCabe, Troy Hawk if you will, will be doing a month-long residency at Soho. 
You've been listening to our interview with Milo McCabe, also known as the unflappable Troy Hawk. My name is Dukey and I've been your host. Until next time, may the worst of tomorrow be the best of yesterday. Now it's time for me to go and uh, <clears throat> pop my weasel. Thanks for listening. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. Show the Dukey Radio Show. The thin white Dukey is right. Click your way to the Dukey Radio Show Facebook page www.facebook.com forward slash the Dukey Radio Show. The Dukey Radio Show. The Dukey Radio Show. All right, stop collaborating. Listen, yeah.